Good evening, everyone. We're so glad that you could be here tonight. This is actually the first ever meeting for uh, ART, which is the Association for Reformed Theology. And now, uh, Wes and I made that name up, and, and initially we called it the Association of Reformed Theology, in which Jim Blaha reminded us that words matter, and that there is no such thing as an association where theologies associate. Um, we could call ourselves the Association of Reformed Theologians, but that would be a big lie. Um, we are not theologians, nor are we attempting to be. And so for, uh, for our exercise and for this group, we're going to call ourselves the Association for Reformed Theology. Now, for many of you, uh, reading this book has been a, a bit of a challenge. And when I say many of you, I mean many of us. Um, because this is a challenging book. And as we go through it, I want to give you permission um, to not understand everything. If you're, if you're reading every sentence and quitting because you don't get it, um, you just don't have that luxury. At some point, if you don't understand something, keep moving, don't get lost in it, and, and mine what you can out of the well that is these great old Puritan uh, you know, reformers. And so that's, that's really what we're going to do here. Uh, in the kind of order of tonight is going to go something like this. Um, I'm going to say an opening prayer for us. I'm going to invite Weston Blaha up. Uh, Weston is our director of family and youth ministries and a seminary student at RTS. Weston uh, has been reading theology like this a lot lately. And if, if reading theology is a muscle, Weston's in much better shape than the rest of us. He's going to come up and give us a, a little bit about uh, Bobnik and about why he's important and a little bit about this book and why it's important. And then uh, the three of us, myself, uh, Richard, and Reverend Blaha, we are all going to take an opportunity to go through one chapter and kind of overview it for you, starting in chapter three. We'll do three, four, and five. Then we will sit down and answer questions here. Please be kind. Uh, I am not a theologian. I'm a preacher who loves Reformed theology and uh, I'm surrounded by some really wise people. We'll do our best to answer questions. Um, if you have questions about something that's like on a certain page, if you, you say, if you'll look and please tell me what it means on page 57, third paragraph, if we can get in the habit of, of a group for you to send that ahead of time or, or give that to us in written form, we'll get back to you with that. But on the floor tonight, if we keep it more of a basic uh, uh, general concepts of questions, that would be helpful. Um, so let's uh, do something very great. Let's go to the Lord together right now. Father God, um, we come together tonight to read uh, theology. Ultimately, God, we come together tonight to talk about you and your character and your goodness and your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that the content of what we read about today is, is this, uh, this idea of the knowledge of God that saves and this, the, the revelation that you freely give of yourself. And, and so uh, may that, as we talk about today, God, may that be a, an act of worship as we talk, talk about this, Lord. We, we praise you and praise your son. Uh, may your spirit give us insight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Weston. Well, good evening. When uh, we first started kicking this around, we thought, man, wouldn't it be great if we could get eight or ten people who'd want to sit around and study, you know, one of these uh, systematic theology books? And then it was, 
man, we've got like 20 people. Wouldn't it be great if we had like 25 people and then we had like 50 people and um, what a blessing. Uh, we are excited about starting the great redneck Dutch revival of Mississippi um, right here uh, tonight. So um, it'll be good. It's going to be good. Um, my role this evening is to, is to give a little bit of context um, to Bob Inc., uh, why we chose um, to do this book in particular, and a little very brief and concise summary of the first couple chapters. And um, Herman Bobbink was uh, born uh, in 1854 uh, and died in 1921. And so what, what he was really known for was being able to harmonize uh, Reformed Orthodox doctrine with what was happening in his modern era and not sacrificing any of the doctrine. And so or any of the purity of the doctrine. And, you know, you can see in our world what tends to happen is as you move forward in, in liberal theology is, is you tend to begin to sacrifice some of these orthodox um, tenets of the faith in order to accommodate the modern culture. And so what Bavink did so so wonderfully was he held to all those orthodox doctrines and, and still engaged modern culture, which was dealing with relativism and all these things that we deal with now um, in a way that very few people have. <clears throat> um, and uh, he, he was dealing with the aftermath of the French Revolution, the European Revolution, um, all kinds of craziness is happening. And it was interesting, he wrote this. I found this in a separate, um, a separate book, uh, but I thought it was, it was very appropriate for what we're doing. You, I'm going to have it on the screen here. You can read it with me. He says, But today it is, above all, the philosophical underpinnings of dogmatics, which is a system of faith. Those are under fire. Not some isolated doctrine, but very possible but the very possibility of dogmatics is being questioned. The human ability to know is restricted to the visible world, and revelation is considered impossible. In addition, Holy Scripture is being robbed of its divine authority by historical criticism, and even the warrant for and value of religion is being seriously disputed. Consequently, religious life today is dramatically less vigorous than before. There is little genuinely religious life, the childlike and simultaneously heroic statement, I believe, is seldom heard and has given way to the doubts of criticism. People perhaps still believe their confessions, but they no longer confess their faith. So, so Bob Inc. is dealing with a culture who very much has, has fallen away from holding and proclaiming those tenets that are so important to what Christianity is and what the Reformation fought for. Um, one, one of the, the, the main people that Bob Inc. interacted with was this guy named Schleiermacher. Um, and Schleiermacher, uh, he died about 20 years before Bob Inc. was born. So by the time Bob Inc. is getting into seminary, um, Schleiermacher's theology is, is really crept in to all these seminaries. It's really starting to take hold. And Schleiermacher is known as the father, the father of modern liberal theology. So this is what Bobbing is dealing with as he's working through his seminary education. He actually goes to a liberal uh, seminary in order to kind of work against, kind of see what these people are learning and, and kind of immerse himself in something a little different. Schleiermacher wrote such things as, Religion's essence is neither thinking or acting, but intuition and feeling. So Schleiermacher thought, it's not about what you know. It's not about pious living. It's all about how you feel right here. What is your truth, right? Um, something we have heard a lot. And so, so Bob Inc. Is, is, is constantly interacting. When he writes this book, he is dealing 
with these types of sentiments and these types of attacks on what is orthodox theology. He's combating relativism and liberal theology. Uh, I want to give you, as Tyson, a little, a little encouragement. Um, Bobbing wrote that mystery is the lifeblood of theology. And what that means is that God is infinite. As such, we will never understand everything. But if we come toward our theology with apathy, or stopping short of pursuing our theology is apathy, uh, but then there's this danger of pursuing beyond what God has revealed, um, and that's ingratitude. If you look at what Eve, the great temptation that Eve fell to, was what? Was God really good to you? Right? Like, he didn't make you like him. He didn't give you enough knowledge to know all things like God knows all things. Therefore, his goodness must come into question. So when we begin to pursue this, this extra realm of knowledge about God, which is back in the old times, we're called, called Gnosticism, and we kind of see it around now just in different forms. Um, this is going beyond, and ultimately it's an ingratitude with what God has revealed to us. Uh, friends, the, the way that we know ourselves is in relation to other things. And that's why theology matters, because we have to know ourselves in relation to God. Bobbink said on page 14, if the knowledge of visible things can enrich life, how much more will the knowledge of God make for life? So he opens his book with man's highest good and the knowledge of God. Uh, and he's starting from this point of objective truth, right? So Bobbink just makes an assumption. There's a God. The highest good of man is God. There is a God. Uh, therefore, if there is a God, he must be man, man's highest good. And therefore, it is in man's highest good to know about this God. And thus, we are to seek after knowing him. And so as he sets up his, his systematic here, uh, the wonderful works of God, he starts with this, this theme of God is the greatest good. Our job is to pursue that greatest good. That's our greatest good. So let's do that. Tyson. Let's, uh, if you have your books and you want to follow along, I'm going to begin uh, talking a little bit about uh, chapter 3 uh, on general revelation. Uh, I have to say I feel a little bit of an affinity towards uh, Bavik in that, uh, you know, here's a guy who over 100 years ago came from a conservative denomination, uh, reformed denomination, and then went to a liberal seminary. Uh, because he believed somehow that he could get a better classical education there and then had to try to get his way back into the conservative denomination, leaving the liberal seminary, which is exactly what I did, right? Trying try to come in after being at Princeton was really hard. Uh, so let's start at chapter 3, general revelation. Um, one of the first things Bovnik talks about it is that God has given man uh, the capacity and the interest to study creation. And uh, so, for instance, we can do science experiments. We can create reactions. You know, we can experiments with elements and chemistry. And, and kind of his first category, he's dealing with this idea of uh, non-biological experimentation. So kind of like matters, material. But he says, however, there are still many mysteries in science. A lot of times we make breakthroughs in science. We make a discovery. And what we really discover is there's a lot more that we don't know. 
And I think that kind of that kind of knowledge makes sense to us. And and if you think about how much we've learned as a culture since then, there was a lot that Bob Nick's culture didn't know. And he makes the observation that it's a little different when we observe biological creatures. That, that we can know some things about them, but we really can't completely dissect an animal and put it back together because that's really, it kills it. It, it ends its life. And so we have to do more of observing of their mysterious nature. Um, and, and once again, his science is 120 years behind. But then he keeps going down this line, and he says, what about our understanding of, of other humans? He says the problem with studying humans is, is that they have the ability to conceal their inner side of their nature from us. In other words, if you're studying somebody, you're going to talk to someone, that person can lie to you. They can hide their facial expressions. Um, they can employ language to hide their thoughts. Our ability to know a person depends very largely on what that person chooses to disclose to us. And I think you'll understand that. Well then, what about understanding God? That's kind of where this begins. Let's start with making one very obvious point. The only way that man is going to know anything about God is if God decides to reveal himself. You're not going to learn something about God that God doesn't want you to know and hasn't intentionally set out for you to know. On page uh, 16, if you were to turn there and you would look at the second sentence, Bovnik writes, we cannot credit a knowledge of God to ourselves, to our own discovery, investigation, or reflection. It's not us that finds God. We begin to see that revelation of God itself is an act of grace. And the reason we can say this is an act of grace is because for if God did not choose to reveal himself to us, we would be lost. There would be no chance, apart from God intentionally showing himself to us, that we would be able to know God simply based on our own efforts. Uh, Bavnik lists several characteristics of God's revelation. First, he says that revelation of God always comes from God acting in freedom. In other words, God is, is freely choosing to reveal himself. He's not feeling manipulated in any way. It, it, it's an act of freedom. Secondly, every revelation of God is, is a self-revelation. In other words, God himself is the content of the revelation. What, he, what he's revealing, it comes from him, but it also is about him. The middle of page 19 in your book, you're going to find a very important sentence in this entire book. Uh, you can find the title of the book in here, and it says this, All of the works of God in nature and grace, in creation and regeneration, in the world and in history, teach us something of the incomprehensible and worshipful being of God. God himself is the purpose for his self-revelation. God is the source. God is the content. God is the purpose. Uh, it reminds me of Romans eleven thirty six. Remember this? It says, For him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What this means is Bovnik states on the bottom of the second paragraph on page 20. If you're looking at the bottom of the second paragraph on page 20 is that revelation, therefore, cannot have its final purpose in man. In part, the revelation of God passes him by 
and, and soars beyond him. It's, it's the, the final purpose of God's revelation when it comes to us. It's not for us initially. Bob makes a point that in Revelation, God is preparing for himself praise. I think that's a really cool thought, that, that, that the revelation of, of God is for God in the sense that, that its final destination isn't just that it rests in our hearts, but that it is turned back around to him in exaltation and praise. Then we get into the specifics of, of general revelation. We're on the 21st page now, the third paragraph, second sentence. In the general revelation, God makes use of the usual run of, uh, he makes use of the usual run of phenomenon and the usual course of events. It's, it's pretty plain, not supernatural. He suggests that it's different when it comes to special revelation. Special revelation uh, employs unusual things, such as appearances and prophecies and miracles. According to Bavink, both general and special revelation, can be found in Scripture. You can find both of them in Scripture. And Scripture gives us eyes to better see the, the general revelation that's in the world. As Bavink puts us, as, as Bavink puts it, Scripture puts into our hands a true reading of nature and history. That's page 22. Now, as, as Bavink speaks about revelation in regards to history, he notes that special revelation was entrusted to Israel. And, and, and however, God did not leave himself without a witness to the nations. And so he sent, if you think about what he did to the nations, he sent, even though they might not have had all the special revelations of God, uh, the supernatural revelations of God, the appearances and the prophecies and, and the word of God, he still sent rain from heaven to the other nations. He still sent fruit in season in order that the nations might seek after him. Uh, look with me at the book of Revelation. We can put this, or excuse me, the book of Romans. Uh, what does Paul say about general revelation? Uh, Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And in this, he's talking about the nations, not Israel. For his inev- invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. One thing that we understand about general revelation is that it leaves man without excuse. The other thing that we know about general revelation is that it is not sufficient for salvation. It leaves people without the excuse uh, uh, before the Lord, but it doesn't tell them about a very important thing. And what is that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is revealed in special revelation. Nothing about looking at a mountaintop, staring out over it. You can say to yourself, when you, and that's general revelation, what you see in nature. You can look out over a mountaintop, over the ocean, and go, man, there is a God, that God is creative, that God is powerful, that God has, has laid this all together for a, for a purpose. You can know all these things, but guess what? None of the knowledge of those things is salvific. So general revelation gives you just enough knowledge that you're on the hook and you can't be found guilty for not having found Jesus, but it doesn't tell you the name of Jesus so that you may be saved. Uh, Bob Nick spends just a little bit of time talking about apologetics in the middle of page 24. I won't get into all of these schools and all of these words that are really complicated. I'm going to list them out. We'll go past them. If we need to come back and touch them later, we will. He's going to talk about six evidences of the existence of God. 
And he lists out plainly and very easy to find the, verse, the first four. And so if, if you guys were like me and you were numbering those, you probably found the first four very easily. That's the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, and the moral argument. Like I said, we could really get lost on these. Uh, I'll, I'll say just something just very briefly about each one. The cosmological argument um, is that basically all of creation depends on something else for their existence. Uh, the teleological argument is, is that you can observe uh, evidence and order and design in nature, and therefore you should be able to like prove the existence of God. The ontological argument may be the most difficult to understand. It, uh, it comes from Anselm. It's this idea that um, God should be the greatest thing that you could imagine in your mind. And, um, and, and if, so if you think of the greatest and the highest and the most powerful thing you can imagine in your mind, then you have the image of God. But if, then if all of a sudden you make that God not real, it's not quite the highest thing you could imagine in your mind. Therefore, by very logic, if God is to be the highest thing you can imagine in your mind, he must be real. I know that's a difficult concept. There it is. Um, and the moral argument is that man is a moral being, and we share morality that presupposes a holy and righteous lawgiver. We have to look a little bit harder in Bobnick's work here to find the fifth and the sixth evidence uh, for God. They're on page 25, though. And the fifth argument is this sense of the universality of religion. It's in paragraph form. It's not highlighted as easily as the other. Um, it, will say that the university of, of, of religion among people throughout all of history, that in every culture there seems to be religion, even though that religion is not the same, even though that religion is very inconsistent, that in all cultures throughout all times, humanity seems to look outside themselves for purpose and understanding and creation in the world. Um, and the sixth argument for the existence of God is this observable historic governance of all things by a supreme being. Uh, and Bobnick suggests that the history of mankind, when seen in the light of Scripture, like when you look back at history and you, and you have in your mind Scripture, that you're going to begin to see a, a pattern um, of the plan of God exhibited there. And so that, that's what he says. Those, it's not important that you grasp all that. Okay, It's not important. Because here's what he says. Those six arguments for the existence of God, Bobnick says it's clear that these six arguments for the existence of God are not enough to compel a man to believe, right? You can make all these great arguments, and they will not compel a man to believe. Uh, top of page 26 says this. Bonnet says, The revelation of God in nature and history could have no effect upon man if there were not something in man himself that responded to it. There's something that had to be internally inside of man. He suggests that the image of God is not fully ruined in us from the fall, that there is something that is still there in us. And it is that image of God within us that allows us to uh, long to see God in nature and in history. And he begins to weave this idea that, that man is God's offspring, and like the prodigal son returns to his home, so does the heart of man long to return to our Heavenly Father. Bovnik calls this the, uh, the increated sense of, of identity, that, that we're the in-created, inward creation, the in-created sense of, of our identity. On the one hand, we feel a, a, a subconscious dependency upon God, the eternal one. But Bobinet makes a point that, uh, that that subconscious dependency upon God, that, that it could lead to revolt without a second thing, and that, 
that, that is some belief deep down that God is good and righteous and wise. So it's those two things, that increated sense in us that, that feels that both um, uh, there is a dependency that we have upon God and that God is good and righteous and wise. And a combination of a feeling of dependence upon God and, and at the same time that God is good is what Bobnik speculated that Calvin meant when he talked about the seed of religion, uh, kind of where it comes from. It comes from this knowledge that, man, I, th- I think that I'm dependent upon something in my origin, and I think that something is really good and powerful. Uh, and, uh, and that God is ultimately good. I think that's, that's really what you get. That's how he ends our third chapter. And so I know that that's a lot. And uh, uh, if you have questions, you can write those down in your cards, and Reverend Blaha will answer all those at a later time. Uh, I think, Richard, I think you're up now. First of all, I am very thankful I didn't get chapter 3. I have chapter 4, or the fourth part. And it is about the value of general revelation. A value has to do with what good does it do us. And so I, I hope in the, uh, in the few minutes, which I planned on relinquishing most of to the right Reverend James Baha down here, because I'll probably end soon. <clears throat> Chapter 4 is primarily concerned with the general revelation as the chapter would indicate. It's the general revelation of God. And the author quickly cautions the reader that although two types of revelation exist, general and special, uh, and they are distinguished from one another, there is a constant interrelationship between the two and that both are are directed to mankind in a historical context. Uh, What that essentially means is God tells us what he wants us to know when he wants us to know it. Uh, Similar to what uh, uh, the pastor just said, is that when God is, when he has a a partial, uh, a part of his spirit which he wants to impart to mankind, he does that, and he does it in a very specific historical context. And that's what we're talking about here tonight. I think it's, it's uh, it's it's very helpful it was to me anyway in, in reading chapter 4 and to understand the concept of the economy of God. Uh, we, we've talked about it, all of us have talked about it at some point in time in Sunday school or, or perhaps even in services, uh, listening to sermons about the economy of God. I'm not, I'm not sure that we always understood what that meant, but the economy of God is what uh, God dispenses his spirit in a particular way to address particular subjects. And it's... it's the word that uh, Bavonic uses is dispensation. He doesn't, co- he doesn't use the word economy. He uses the word dispensation. But in the Hebrew and the Greek text, both of those words have a very similar meaning. Now, if you look in your, your handy, nobody looks in their handy Funkin' Wagnall Dictionary anymore. They may not have one. They used to sell them or give them away at Winn-Dixie if you bought enough groceries. But if you looked in your dictionary, you would see that Dispensation is a very simple word. It just means to uh, the, the act or the instance of giving something away. 
giving it to someone. Now, later on in the, in the dictionary, it gives a different dictionary, uh, or in the, uh, another meaning, which makes English one of the more difficult languages to, to know or to understand, is there is a further on down in the dictionary, they'll tell you that dispensation also has to do with another subject, which has to do with, with a special, uh, perhaps a favorable inclination towards someone. They've been given a special dispensation. Now, the dispensation that Bavonic is talking about here is not the dispensation that we normally think of when we hear the word. It has nothing at all to do with dispensationalism. Uh, I I made a mental note and and certainly was reminded of that, that this is not the theological rabbit hole of dispensationalism. Bavonic did not want to go down that rabbit hole, and neither do I. Uh, And and I don't use the word rabbit hole as a pejorative. I use it as as just a way to describe... The, the multiple permutations of what dispensational is today in the church. So we're not going there. Bavani didn't go there in his, in his text. All he meant was that it's simply the means by which God dispenses himself into the human race. He dispenses, what does he dispense? Well, what is God? God is a spirit. And so God dispenses his spirit into mankind at an, in a historical context, meaning that he gives us his spirit when he wants us to have it uh, in a historical context or what he wants us to know in a, and when he wants us to know it. It includes both the administrative arrangements that he might have in mind, the governmental management, uh, or the dispensing stewardship of God's plan. And we, when, when you talk about the dispensing stewardship of God's plan, perhaps you think about what happened when God first started dispensing his spirit into mankind, which was in the Garden of Eden. And he gave a dispensing spirit in, in, in terms of what he told Adam and Eve, the Edenic covenant. He told them what their responsibilities were going to be in the garden. That was started their stewardship. In this divine dispensation, God, who is almighty and all-inclusive, intends to dispense nothing other than himself, his spirit. And this needs to be repeated again and again and again and again and again. And we find as we read Bavonic's book that God dispenses his spirit again and again and again and again. And he's still is dispensing his spirit even today because he knows that we need to have it continually dispensed to impress upon us uh, what God Uh, desires or wants from us. Now, the historical context of God's dispensation is exposed starting in chapter 4 by the author's use of the organizing of God's general revelation in the following dispensations. Again, please don't confuse that with dispensationalism. But the dispensation of innocence was the first one. It essentially covered the first three chapters of Genesis, and it covers the creation story itself, It covers both the Edenic covenant and also the fall of man. Now, after man had fallen, after Eve had been seduced by Satan to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and she had enticed Adam to join her in that, uh, God appeared to them and, and, and spoke to them, and he told them what the consequences of that were going to be. It wasn't, I'm sure it probably wasn't as they imagined it was going to because because God did not kill them. And that was supposed to be the punishment. You will surely die. But he didn't. And if Bavonic in his book writes 
in, in sort of explaining this, this uh, what took place there, he says uh, on, on page 29, top of the page, he says, but in short, a condition now sets in which God had known, which God had established, but which man had not been able to anticipate. It is a condition which has a very special character. It is one in which wrath and grace, punishment and blessing, judgment and long-suffering are mingled with one another or with each other, which begins that process that, that happens again and again and again throughout the history of man. This was the, the historical context of the dispensation of innocence, it ended in, in the, the Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden. Then Bavini talks about the next dispensation, which was the dispensation of innocence. Genesis, uh, uh, I think it goes from chapter, well, about the third chapter until about the eighth chapter, almost to the ninth chapter. The expulsion from the garden began the dispensation of conscience, a time when man was left to rule by himself or rule himself by his own will and his conscience, both of which had been tainted by sin. A conscience tainted by sin doesn't do a very good job at ruling self. It was a disaster and it ended when the world was destroyed by a flood. During this dispensation, man became so evil that every intention of his thoughts and of his heart were only on evil continually. God regretted making man and was grieved to his heart and this was the time also when fallen angels inhabited the earth and married in human women and produced giant and evil offspring called Nephilim. God chose to end humanity and begin again with Noah and his family. The dispensation of conscience. Now the next and the last dispensation that occurs in part four is the dispensation of human government. Again, God intervenes after Noah had spent his, uh, his time in the ark and, and landed on Mount Ariat. And then God gave them special instructions about what they were to do. This dispensation began after the flood. God made promises and he gave commands to Noah and his family. God promised not to curse the earth again and never flood it again. This was called the nature covenant or the natural covenant which we, we all recognize now whenever we see a rainbow. He commanded Noah and his family to, re, to repopulate the world and scatter across the earth. He allowed them to use animals for food. He established the law of capital punishment. And Noah's descendants failed to fill the, the, the uh, earth. And instead, they worked together to build the Tower of Babel. God countered this action by confusing their language, creating nations and cultures and ethnic groups and races, and spread them around the world. This was the beginning of human government. Now, there are some general observations that you will, I made, and certainly I'm sure you will make similar observations about this, this particular part or the value of general revelation. First of all, mankind is made to learn via objective teaching. God provokes man to seek him, to fill him out, and to find him without excuse. Now, for those of you who are not, and I would imagine that many of you are, familiar with this thing called objective teaching. Uh, it probably if you used it in the, in the world today, it would be very familiar because most of what we're doing in school now is objective teaching. 
That's nothing more than assigning a textbook some, and some objectives as far as the course is concerned, and then you're on your own. It's sort of self, self-taught. It may, be a, it may be an independent study that you're doing. But that's objective teaching. You're left to your own devices to, to, to get from, from what they tell you in the beginning, from the textbook to the general instructions, and then you're on your own to get to the end. And that's the way God was, was leaving mankind during these first dispensations. He left them on their own to learn. They were to seek him, feel him out, and to find him, and again, without excuse, because they had the general revelation, which was without excuse. The second observation you may make is about obedience is God's, in God's economy is rewarded by blessings and favor, and disobedience is punished, and then a new revelation is usually given. Another observation you may make, mankind realizes that there is consistency of outcomes in God's economy as dispensations continue. Certainly you would hope that that would be a value of, 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 a, of a little bit of <clears throat> uh, historical reflection, if you will. Looking at, looking at previous dispensations or looking at history and find out what has happened in man's relationship to God and seeing that there is some consistency in outcomes. When we obey, we gain God's favor and his blessings. When we disobey, we gain God's wrath and perhaps... Uh, uh, sometimes that ends in, 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 in the, a, a terminal uh, end. Other times it is God gives us additional revelation and he leads us on to or gives us no, new goals and objectives, if you will. And finally, in chapter 4, you find that the religio-moral point of view, civilization, civilization uh, fell completely during those early dispensations. And they failed because it was left to its own devices. And as, as we pointed out in, in the dispensation of conscience, uh, a man whose, whose uh, uh, conscience has been tainted by sin is not going to have a good outcome if he does not seek God and find out what God wants him to do and how he is to do it. Uh, I, I'm sure none of you will have any questions, but if you do, Jim will entertain them. Uh, there's some overlap. Um, can you give me my glasses? Um, that's sort of how the chapters work. Uh, so, so I hope you understand. There's there's two categories of this revelation. Okay, there's general revelation. There's uh, special revelation. Um, now, uh, the. the the phrase I'm used to working with is something called common grace and special grace. And it's interesting, in one commentator, he'll spend two pages on general revelation, which we're talking about here. Bobbing spends chapters on it. And this is a reduced from a, a larger work. And then, um, and, then, uh, the other, and then nothing on common grace. And then the other guy I read spent 100 pages on gr- common grace and nothing on this. Okay, because I think for Babak, um, the, these common grace, which I, we often just see is the blessing God gives to all man, but he cannot be saved through it. Okay, is really the same for him as the general revelation. 
And at the heart of this, he likes that word revelation because whether it's general or whether it is um, um, special, it demands something outside us to come in and in some way ultimately ultimately uh, give it to us. So the general revelation, that's just that's been given to everybody in the image of God. And so basically, as we said, that you can see it in nature. They can look at history. They can have their inner sense in some way, which he, was very, he thought was very important. And they can figure things out about life. And, and, and even just how to plow and how to um, you know, do the things that they're, they're called to do in regular life. But it also can make them know some things about God. And, uh, but he, as we have said, it's never enough that they can find God. They simply know he's out there. And so they'll create all kinds of religions and things is what we see they do. And yet there are men in a dark room trying to create something, but there is absolutely no light. Special um, revelation is given to a special people when God is ready to do it. And it gives more meaning to all that other general revelation stuff. It makes, it gives it sense. And ultimately, in special revelation, you cannot know God exhaustively, but you can know him truly. You really can have honest knowledge of him, and it can bring that redemption uh, that, that is necessary. And the word he likes to use a lot is he says, basically, in all revelation, God speaks. And he says, from beginning to the end of the Bible, it's all about our favorite word, the word of God. And so we think about in, in Genesis, the very first verse, the first thing that says God says, it says, uh, God speaks, he says, uh, God's, um, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's the story throughout scriptures. And ultimately, we hear in Hebrews, it says that, um, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And so the, the, the picture is that God makes everything by his word, and when it's all created, he continues to uphold every little bit of it at every moment of time by that same word. He's a constantly speaking God. If God ever stops to speak, just for one moment, he stops, we all disappear, we go away, or whatever, that, how that happens. And so ultimately, God even speaks salvation. In the beginning, the word, the word became flesh. The word comes, and it comes to um, save us. Now, the big difference, and I think we alluded it to just a bit here, is that in all that general revelation, um, man goes about trying to discover the thoughts and the works of God. He, he, let's find out what God's like in his creation and who he is. Um, <clears throat> they can study the laws of nature. They can figure out you know, cause and effect. Um, you, you know, harvest and grain and harvest. They can do those things. But again, it's limited. And I'm going to bring it up one more time, that Romans number, uh, I'm going to give a next verse there, uh, 1, 18 through 21. Um, doesn't show up there. Okay. <clears throat> it says, but it, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness. So that's the, uh, all, everything that's under ultimately this general revelation, that's, it stands under the wrath of God. And um, against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. That's fundamentally what they'll do. For what can be known about God's plain to them because God has shown it to them in all, through all things. But he has these invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. They know enough that there's a powerful God and that he has and, and, and that he, he's the, there's a divine, divine thing back there and he's powerful. Um, they know that much ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
Doesn't mean they didn't get religion, um, religious to do some of these things, but they could never know God in the way that he would properly honor him and give him thanks. And so they became futile in their thinking and foolish heart, and their foolish hearts um, were, were, dark, were darkened. And so, um, they, so they, they, they can see these things, but in the end, all it does is it leaves them without um, excuse. Special um, revelation is different because then God goes out and seeks man and in his compassion, and he tells him who he is. And the special revelation, which we're going to know, learn more about in the, in, the, in the next month, but it really it's centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's the scriptures, and it's those old Israel in the Old Testament, the scriptures testifying of these things. And another thing he says, it's also the inspiration in the individual that um, would, would believe. Okay, the illumination would be part of that special revelation. That's unique to some people. Not everybody has that. Everyone has general revelation. Not everyone has special revelation. And so as Paul says in one place, by nature, otherwise general revelation, we're, we're just children of wrath. But by special revelation, we can become children of God. And so what it looks like in the New Testament... Um, when it talks about um, this special revelation. We have Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, in many times, in many ways, some say sundry times, sundry ways, but many different times, many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, And these the prophets mean all the guys, like uh, Moses, Abraham, the, prophet, the prophets proper that we often think of, Isaiah and Elijah. But in these last days, these days, last being um, either the end of the Jewish economy or the, the, the age between the, coming, the first and the, coming, uh, the last coming of Christ. So in these last days that we're a part of, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, to whom also he created uh, the world. And so in past times, through prophecies and visions and Things on, uh, put on stone through um, audible voices, just many different ways, many different places um, he, had, he, he has spoken. Um, but now he has spoken, he says, in Christ. This is like the final great voice of, of Christ. And um, he, 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 he's, his birth, his sinless life, his transfiguration, his resurrection, his ascension, the salvation that he brings, his conversion, all the healings. And really above, or not above all, but many, many ways, the miracles, both in the Old and the New Testaments, are all testimonies um, to, to Jesus. Now, and, and, this new, and this special revelation. Now, one thing he did, he spent a lot of time wanting to talk about miracles. And the reason miracles were, were so important for him, he, he said, look, we view miracles wrong. We often see them as some kind of invasion into this world. Um, as good Reformed theologian, he understood that nothing happens, happens that God does not predetermine and God does not providentially make it happen at that point in time. And miracles aren't an invasion so much. It's simply, simply that God is doing something different than he normally has done. A miracle is not you stepping out of a boat, drowning, and then somebody rescuing you, and you have no heartbeat, and then he breathes into your chest, and you come alive. That's not a miracle. A miracle is you step off the boat, and you walk on the water. Okay? Those kind of things, not just high probability that you didn't expect to happen, but where they actually are different than God does, all the other things that God does 
are the miracles, and they're always pointing to God's great plan. I mean, in the end, the miracles say that God is, uh, uh, that, that the Lord is God. See, I said, yeah, the Lord is God. The world's not God, okay? And so that's what his miracles do. Um, so in the end, uh, the, the, the miracles are clustered around Moses. They're clustered around the prophets and ultimately around Jesus himself. And the years after that, Jesus were here immediately. Um, all those works through the apostles, they testify to the exalted Christ. He really, really is, um, is alive. And so he summarizes it finally when he says that special revelation is seen in two ways. Manifestations, which means everything in the Old Testament, the person and the work of Christ, and scripture, and inspiration, which we would call illumination, where the individual believer, um, the internal illumination that all believers have at all time. I believe you're going to come. All right, so there's three money boxes in the back. You can vote on which speaker was the best on your way out the door. Um, no, so what we're going to do right now is uh, we're going we're gonna to invite the, the three speakers to come have a chair. Uh, and so what I think would be more fun in the future is to play Two Truths and a Heretic and see if you can figure out which one's lying um, the, whole, the whole way through. Um, but uh, so what we're going to do is... Uh, we have some questions that some people email in. Did anyone have any questions that they wrote on a note card? Um, or did we do such a good job? We may have done just such a good job uh, explaining it. And that's fine. If you do, uh, our man Gavin over there will collect it and bring it up. Um, but if not, I have some that were sent in. And so we will start with those. Um, all right, so the first question we had was, um, why have I never heard the distinction between general and special revelation before? Why is that a new concept for us? Tyson? Well, I think that's a great question. Um, because you've never gone down the rabbit hole of theological work. And it is a rabbit hole. And, and like you would, uh, there are so many terms that you haven't heard. And um, I mean, I, I really think there really, really are. I mean, uh, when you start talking about theology, it can be as deep and dense as you want it to go. And there are terms. And I would also say, I think we have at times in this church, I know I've taught classes at times in this church where I've talked about the difference between general and specific revelation. Um, so uh, just depending on maybe uh, the classes that you were in and, uh, yeah. Very good. Um, I'll open this up to anyone here. How would we, from a, from a Christian perspective, how would we reconcile uh, what we see as God's special revelation with something like a scientific record or something that, that would be his argument kind of against um, special revelation as an authority. Question, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> How convenient. Yeah. Okay. How, what do we do with Is this working? you got to push okay. the button on yeah, the Um, look, I, the, otherwise, when basically our special revelation and what we understand to be our um, general revelation contradict. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, in the end of, in the end, first of all, 
um, you, you, in humility, you have to admit that in either case, you might not be um, uh, know the exact truth. I mean, there are things I used to believe about my special revelation that I do not believe anymore or I, I, I thought wrongly. And, then, and so there's that whole aspect. Um, the same thing if you want to look at um, the um, general revelation in the world, things like evolution, how often does that plan change? Okay, so there's a certain humility in that. Um, but ultimately, um, special revelation allows you to understand um, the general revelation. General revelation, um, you know, it can be a bridge. Uh, there's enough in general revelation to know that you need something more. Uh, this is what the gentleman was, he'd say, if nothing else, it'll tell you. Um, there, I think C.S. Lewis said this. Everybody out there knows, one, there's some kind of law out there he ought to keep. And two, he can't do it. Just knowing that pushes you in a certain direction. Um, but in the end, um, um, if you just take people who exalt general revelation, um, then soon it comes up to all kinds of crazy craziness. Look in your world today. Um, but the special revelation is the one that would always take precedent over that. And that causes us issues. When we say, um, this is what a marriage is supposed to be, and the world says, that is what a marriage is supposed to be. We say, this is what um, creation is supposed to look like. We say, this is what a human, a human being is. And they say, that's what a human being is. They're different definitions, and they have very real life and death, death effects um, on how we um, understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just add to that. You know, I think what was it Calvin had the statement is, is that the as you put your glasses in your pocket, that it says something along the lines of the Holy Spirit is like a pair of glasses that allows us to read the scriptures. And I think in a similar term, uh, what I read in Bobnik is is that scripture becomes a set of glasses by which we read general revelation. Right? That that we we, we can't really fully understand what we see in nature, what we see in in creation, until we have scripture, which then kind of is to us like a set of glasses that allows us to fully see that and, and, and history at the same time. Yeah, I, I'll just add that I had a, maybe it's a really cheesy illustration, but I heard someone, uh, one of our professors told us that it was kind of like you have a, you know, if you have a stamp, those little wax seals that they would make a stamp with, um, you, can, you can explore and study that seal uh, or the, the wax, and you can learn a whole lot about that stamp. But if you don't actually know what the stamp looks like, you can't really recreate the stamp, right? Like you can't create the handle and all these different parts to it that make it unique. And so you have this general and special revelation. General revelation is kind of like the remaining seal. You, you can learn what the stamp wants you to learn about it um, from that seal, but, but you can't ultimately know it. Um, and so uh, let's see. It says, uh, next question is, are all men created in the image of God? Who wants to take it? I think my mic is broken. I think your mic's on. <laughs> I think your mic's on. Just fine. So the question is, all men are creating the image of God. Good. So yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Yes, all men are creating the image of God. Um, and I, if we could get back to understand, valuing that, it might change a lot of the issues we have going on in our world right now. Um, very much so. I think what we read in Bobnik is, is the, that the image of God is, is in a lot of ways... Um, hurt, affected by the fall, you know, diminished by the fall, right? And I think what he said in there today in regards to general revelation was that uh, it's not completely gone. It's not completely wiped out. Um, there is enough of, we talked about that as that, what was it, the incentric call or knowledge of God? This is, is that man can't know God unless God was inside of him first. And it's that stamp that what's left of the image of God inside man that allows him to, to even see and 
and, and understand what's happening in general revelation. Yeah, as a follow-up, one of the questions was, what are the types of things we consider the small remains? On page one, he says there's these small remains, you know, um, left over. And I think we've, we've kind of answered that, too, in the process. It's that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been fortunate to have to study a lot of Bavinks. This worked out really well. And so in his, in his ethics book, I'm reading for a, a different class, um, he makes the point that what man lost uh, was this ability for his goodness to... to basically be acceptable before God. And so when, when sin happens, man loses that ability for goodness and he needs Christ. And so um, there, there's still that remains of the image of God, but it's, there's this taint and this corruption um, in it now that we have to have that special revelation and we have to have Christ through that. Let's see. Um, how do we know where special revelation ends? Is there any chance that we could possibly be missing uh, something like an apostolic letter or something like that and be missing out on some special revelation from God? <laughs> and who wrote Hebrews? Okay. <laughs> I remember that was, that was one of the questions. Suppose they found a letter by the Apostle Paul that everybody agreed was, was, really, read, was, was written by the Apostle Paul. And so it's apostolic, and it's not inconsistent with anything else. Um, would they would they would they call that scripture? Uh, and um, you got a little of that because they they've actually you know they've just found uh, many years ago a uh, 151st Psalm by David, which belonged in all that stuff. So um, I, again, I think it's, he does consider special revelation. Um, the illumination the individual has, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about, um, he does say everything Jesus said and done that wasn't also inscripted, which means we don't have it written down. Jesus did do and say other things. He is by him, by, by definition, a, um, special revelation. Everything he said and did was also special, special revelation. But I think, um, the general, belief in the church is that with the closing of the canon that scripture uh, that ends that kind of special more testimony either actions lives or testimonies that we consider special revelation right yeah i can't remember who said it we we talked about this earlier but someone said um if it agrees with scripture it's unnecessary if it disagrees with scripture it's wrong um so All right, so let's see here. Um, ah, this is good. We talked about this in the staff meeting, Tyson. So I hope you're ready. Uh, it says on, the, on, the, on page 19, the last paragraph says, And not only we humans being on earth, but the saints and the angels in heaven also, and even the Son of God in his human nature have a knowledge of God which is different in principle and essence from the self-knowledge of God. So the question is, did the Son not have full access to the self-knowledge of God and his humanity. So, you know, we did talk about this a lot in staff meetings yeah. today, didn't we? And uh, I thought, Weston, you maybe gave uh, one of the best answers oh, yeah, right. yeah. that I have heard in quite a long time about this. But there is, I mean, there is a part of Jesus in which he subdues part of his glory for the sake of, of going to the cross and, and being humiliated, which is a word we don't often use when we talk about Jesus, but the, the humiliation of Jesus is a denial of his full knowledge as, of, as, of being part of the Godhead. 
Would you add to that? No, yeah. I mean, part, part of the humility is that, that veiling of uh, taking the easy way out a little bit, right? You know, when, when, when Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, Jesus could turn those stones to bread. And, and Jesus' response isn't to result to his deity, but rather it's to do what every other human being would have to do, and that's to turn to Scripture to combat the temptation of Satan. And so Jesus, in his humanity, veils off his deity in a way that he suffers all things um, in the same way that we would suffer all things in his full humanity. So, yeah. When we say that general revelation is enough to leave men without excuse, but it isn't enough to save them. Wouldn't the lack of special revelation be an excuse? How is man on the hook when he may not have the specific knowledge of Christ necessary for salvation? So we say general revelation is enough to leave man without excuse, but it isn't enough to save them. Wouldn't the lack of special revelation be an excuse? So how can man be held accountable? I mean, otherwise, he's saying, why is God blaming him if he can't have I think it? so, yeah. Uh, Romans 9. If you, if you got it, uh, get your Bible there. Uh, no, anybody got there? If you want to get it. Paul has asked that question. And still, this is the best answer. Um, You've got to figure if, if Paul gets the, gets the question. Don't read Weston's. It's the message. <laughs> <laughs> I've started translating it myself. I'm it's going to be good one Bible. day. Okay, so. Um, da, 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 da. Okay, he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say there? Is there injustice in God? By no means. He says, no injustice in God. You know, we want to say, is that, that's not fair. Okay, he says injustice. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Notice Paul quotes the Old Testament and Moses. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Um, for then it talks, um, oh, and, then, and then, then the next one in verse 19, it says, You will then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And here was his answer. And every Christian somewhere has to process this. However you want to choose to do it in your lives, if you're a believer. Um, you know, but this is how Paul processed it. He says, um, he says uh, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? And, and look, it, 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 somewhere in our faith grows up, you know, because we want to have, we want easy little answers that will give every answer that would feel, appeal to our fallen sinful concepts of justice or fairness. Um, Paul was kind of faced with that. Um, his answer ultimately was, you know, what, the point is, why does God share his special revelation with some and not others? And his answer ultimately was, um, there is no other. Who are you to ask the question even, to question that? Um, which is not an easy answer, especially in our world. But I, I think it's the one Paul used. I don't know if you want to add something. I mean, isn't the, the age-old question where we start out by saying, uh, how unjust is God? not to uh, give his grace to everyone. And the, maybe the more we read scripture, we go, how grace-filled is God that he would give his grace to anyone? Yeah, when he says, um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, uh, Spurgeon, this is well known, I think Spurgeon was the one who pointed this out, we're always amazed that God would hate Esau. 
what we should be is amazed that God would love Jacob. All right, we've got one more, and, and this one may fit better as we hit closer to, to maybe justification or, or some other categories, but um, so I'm giving you an out. Uh, if God determines all things at a specific time, does he also determine evil? Evil. Was God the author of evil, I would guess, might be the, the question. That's clearly a McClendon question, right? That's uh... a... <laughs> <laughs> that's how we're told to answer questions at presbytery too don't don't elaborate just give the right answer and just hope they don't follow up with you um it's uh is that the, kind of the idea of the theodicy that that uh you know, we're always trying to figure out how to do that that word puzzle that has three parts you know um god is sovereign god is good mm-hmm. and evil exists and any attempt to try to answer the problem of, you know, the idea of evil is going to uh, dissolve one of those three things. Yeah. Either you're going to, in trying to answer that question, you're going to either say, well, God's not really sovereign, or God is not really good, or evil doesn't really exist. Um, and so it creates this kind of theological word problem. Um, I think sometimes Calvin tends to lean to the evil doesn't exist by saying, in a sense, that all things work together for the good of those that are, you know, kind of, God's election and providence, you know, sometimes I think that his critics would say that at least, you know, uh, I tend to think he does a pretty good job. You mentioned the thing about the mystery. Mystery makes you seek God. There's, there, we will forever, for, our glory is searching matters out, finding them. And you all know what it's like. We've all talked about this. What a kid's like. You ask one, you can't ask you one question, you give them an answer. What do they then do? Five more. And if you answer each one of those five, that's our nature. We will forever be searching out a matter, never touching it, never scratching the surface of knowing it all, but we'll enjoy it for eternity. We're made for that. On the other hand, and this is the other side of the, the mystery, is that you don't push in where you, you angels fear to tread. There are things that are, there are just truths that exist. God is sovereign. You are responsible. God ordains all things. He is not the author of evil. These exist because God declares them to be true. And, and again, we process that as... as, as uh, his children. Very so good. what? Y- y'all did good. We answered all the questions this evening. We're running about about 10 minutes over our, our intentional time, but I think it was good. I think it was good. So um, the next part is our, our, so why does any of this matter to us? So, Tyson. Yeah, so uh, I did youth ministry for a number of years. Maybe many of you have been involved in youth ministry. We always, when we would do youth ministry, we would we'd take a lot of these uh Camping, backpacking trips with teenage boys and girls, you know, and uh, we go up into the mountains. And I can remember one time in particular, I took a student with me uh, up there, and a good kid, uh, a very questioning kid, had not professed a faith in Jesus Christ in any professional way, had not been called to that that, that place in life. And while we uh, were together uh, up in the mountains, uh, he turned to me and made the statement, look at all the mighty works of creation, something of the mountains and all this beauty. Is there any doubt that God created all this? Isn't this amazing? And in the moment, a bunch of us youth directors high-fived each other. (laughs) We did. We thought, this kid has just accepted Christ. He hadn't. That was exposure to general revelation. What needed to happen, if you would know this stuff, if you had good theology, you would say, 
let's talk to you about Jesus. And let me talk to you about the redemption of sin that comes in Jesus. Now that you have seen that God exists, that is just enough for you to be considered guilty. That is not enough for salvation. That's why this matters. Makes sense. Um, anyway, uh, let's have a word of prayer. I, I, listen, uh, if, if you just got your book today so you didn't read any of this stuff, um, don't feel like you have to go back and read it all. You have the permission to start from where we are. We'll meet again next month, the fourth, uh, uh, the fourth Tuesday. And uh, Richard, I want to thank you for being an elder up on stage today. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, we will probably continue to have a different elder representation every time. Love to have Richard back up here sometime in the midst of that as well. He brings an amazing ability to teach. Um, don't be intimidated by, by, by not getting everything. Come and see what we can wring out of it together, okay? Uh, let's, let's go well, over. A couple, couple things? Yeah, please. And one, you can't send. There's something you didn't want to say here, but please send. You're going to be the. Uh, yeah, shoot me an email with, if you have a question. On this. So you shoot an email, Wes, and what about this? And then we'll send it out. We'll, we can send it to the group. I mean, if you just want it to yourself, say just to me. But if you don't mind it, other people, we can send it to the group, and then we can be discussing this sort of as a group a little bit. Um, also, if you ordered a book. Last week, there's still some, I haven't picked it up yet, there's some books out there. If you ordered the book just in the last few days, you should wait on those right now, yeah, well, right? We, I think we may actually be, be set. So if someone past couple days wants a book, I think we actually have you, enough back there to go ahead and grab you one. You can go ahead yep. and grab one. Yep. Okay, okay. Um, all right. Okay, let's pray. Father, that you would reveal yourself to us is in itself an act of grace. You reveal things about your nature in the way that you order creation. And those things are valuable for us to know. They edify us. I pray that as we read your word, we would understand that general revelation better. And I thank you that, uh, that you have given us your word. You've told us about Jesus Christ. You've done those special revelations um, that, that bring us salvation. And to you be all glory, our creator, our, our sustainer, and to Christ, our redeemer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thanks, Wes. Yeah, thank you.